Thank you, Autumn. Uh, that piece is called Count Your Blessings, and, and we do have many blessings to count. Um, if you would please turn to Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I'll mention, we got a, you might have noticed we got a new projector uh, not long ago, and it keeps wanting to return to idle mode, and it has a lot of settings, and the booth is working on that. Um, so I'm going to come to their defense and uh, hope that they do the same for me after this message. So, <laughs> Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Here again, the veil is being pulled back a little at a time with who Christ is to the disciples. Beginning in verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and Jesus saw two boats lying by the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Well, it's probably best to divide this really noteworthy passage into two parts. The miracle of the fishes and then the calling of the disciples. Actually, this passage could be considered the second calling of the disciples. Their first calling was one to follow Jesus at somewhat of a distance. Not all the disciples were part of that earlier group. Surely Andrew, Peter, James, and John were, as well as Philip and Nathaniel. But this earlier group, or the earliest group of disciples, followed Jesus at somewhat of a distance. They got to attend the wedding in Cana when Jesus turned the water into wine. They heard him teaching, they witnessed a number of miracles, but they had not to this point left their occupations. During this initial period, which commentators believe was an extended period of time, actually John MacArthur believes this first period could have been as long as 18 months into Jesus' three-year ministry. That means that 18 months would have passed since Jesus' baptism, if that is correct. Luke doesn't include Jesus' first meeting with these disciples. He doesn't record that. Uh, We have to rely on other Gospels for that information. 
We will see the calling of Levi and the selection of the twelve later on in chapter 6 of Luke. Uh, But to really assemble a perfect timeline of the calling of these disciples, it's nearly impossible because none of the Gospels are provided in a woodenly chronological order. Often uh, the four Gospel writers divert for a period in their Gospels uh, to teach topically, uh, so it's hard to get a strict timeline. But by harmonizing the four Gospels together, theologians have gotten pretty close. We've got a really good idea of the order of the calling of the apostles. What we do know is that by this point in Luke chapter 5, these first disciples, they've had considerable exposure to Christ's ministry. Jesus by now has even uh, adopted their hometown of Capernaum. He adopted it after he had been rejected from his hometown of Nazareth. Capernaum is uh, is located on the northwest corner of Lake Gennesaret. And Jesus made this as his home base, if you will. It's just a small fishing village. I have a couple photos here for you. The first one is going to be of some some ruins of Capernaum, modern day. That's it. About 15 acres within the wall there. You can see that uh, there's that synagogue I showed a picture of the ruins a few weeks ago, pretty much in the middle, little homes and and businesses around it. And uh, toward the lake side there, you can see that there's actually been constructed uh, a type of uh, worship area where groups can come in and then pray together and and have a service in Capernaum. But that's that's it modern day. That's what's left for us to see. Uh, The next picture is an artist's rendering of what he thinks it probably looked like in Jesus' day. You see some docks there, uh, the lake, and uh, looks very similar, just with roofs and and the completed buildings. Third, I have a picture of Lake Gennesaret. It's also called the Sea of Galilee. And you can see the other side there. It actually looks to us like a, a big lake. It's a big freshwater fishing lake. And finally, to offer a little more perspective, I'd like to put up a map of Israel that shows the Sea of Galilee, uh, where our setting is today at the very top. The small little, yeah, little part of water there in the far north. Uh, Capernaum sits on the northwest shore, as I said. Nazareth is about 40 miles southwest of the lake. And then uh, Jerusalem is about 90 miles as the crow flies almost due south. Of course, Jesus adopted Capernaum after being rejected by his hometown. And he has been traveling through this area in northern Israel, teaching small villages, preaching the kingdom of God, as we learned last week. And from time to time, he would return to Capernaum uh, for a rest and for other teaching on the Sea of Galilee. This is the occasion that we find ourselves today, Luke chapter 5. Jesus is teaching the crowd next to the lake, close to where Peter, James, and John had been fishing. And in verse 1 it tells us, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God, he, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So the people that were pressing around Jesus... How big was the crowd? We don't know. It doesn't say. 
But it was big enough, apparently, where Jesus was finding it difficult to teach, difficult to preach, as they crowded him. I, I doubt it was a huge crowd, because Capernaum itself wasn't that huge. This was early morning. The disciples weren't even part of this crowd, when you look at the text. They were actually nearby. They were cleaning out their nets along the shoreline after a long night of fishing. And right there you can kind of visualize or, or uh, get the sense of how Jesus carried on his teaching ministry while the, uh, the disciples kept their occupations going. Jesus would travel out of town. He would come back. He would teach. But there was, a, there was still a level of separation of the disciples from Jesus. They remained at their regular jobs. They were still earning a living. They didn't follow him everywhere that he went. They had not yet received a full-time calling to ministry. Well, that's soon about to change. As the people were pressing around Jesus, he decided to adjust his location. In verse verse 2, we are told, he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing out their nets. We know that Jesus knows who these fishermen are. He had already stayed at Simon's home, we learned earlier in this gospel. Luke is merely uh, providing this in a manner so that we can get introduced to to who he's talking about. The reader needs to figure out who are these people. If, if Luke didn't introduce them in some kind of setting, you know, we'd be wondering, well, who are these men? Where do these men come from? All of a sudden, we've got Luke and John and Andrew and James. Where did they come from? So Luke tells us they were fishermen. That was the occupation of most of Jesus' disciples. They weren't priests. They weren't Levites. They weren't educated in the finest rabbinic schools or seminaries of the day. They weren't schooled in rabbinic thought. Folks, they were blue-collar workers. They'd just gotten over a hard night's work. They'd been out all night fishing with nets. And they got skunked. So they're working near the edge and, and they're working the seaweed out of their nets and they're cleaning them up and, and, and attempting to hang them up then so they could dry and be easy to throw again the next evening. Not a single fish in their possession. Folks, fishing with nets all night. We're not talking about a hook and a worm here. Everybody's gotten skunked on that, right? These are commercial fishermen casting nets. Not even one fish. And their failure provides Jesus a teaching opportunity. It's one that will be beneficial to anyone who's considering entering the full-time ministry, vocational ministry. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But verse number 3 says, Jesus got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And Jesus sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. So again, we observe that, that the main emphasis, the major emphasis of Jesus' ministry is a teaching ministry. 
I anticipate some of the people in the crowd were, were pushing on him. They were equally or more concerned about a potential of a healing. They were pressing upon Jesus. But Jesus presses back, pushes away from the shore to focus on that which is superlative. Teaching the word of God. That's the emphasis. Teaching the word of God would have to keep the people's attention, folks. Jesus is now sitting in a boat. He has pushed away. He's put some distance between him and them, opening up the opportunity to speak more clear. And if they don't want to listen to what verse number one reveals as the word of God, then they can go back and they can take a nap. They can leave. Jesus is going to teach them from the boat. From a distance. They don't like that. They can wander away, folks. I I can't tell you how often we have discussions at the leadership level of the church. Discussions concerning how can we impact more people. That's what we want to do with our ministry is impact more people. We'd love to do that. So let's just be honest. That discussion usually pivots somewhat to how can we attract more people, right? How can we attract them so that we can impact more people? But the goals of impacting and attracting folks, they are not synonymous. Those two goals in and of themselves, they're not, they don't run parallel to one another and they're not synonymous. You'd probably like to know at, at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, We're not blind. We're really not. We do see where the crowds generally migrate. As do you. And we know exactly what most of the larger churches offer. Would most of their crowds sit and listen to a man teaching the word of God out of a boat? I don't know. I know you folks would. And I suppose, you know, people sometimes wonder if we realize that, that stringing the strobe lights and, and hanging up the proverbial disco ball would attract more people. We do realize that. We do know that. Sure, it might. Lots of pe- churches are trying that type of thing. But at the conclusion of our assessing, our self-assessments, you know, we always return to the fact that, that if they're not willing to sit through the teaching of the Word of God then we're not really impacting them. We might be attracting them, but we wouldn't be impacting them. Short of a healthy portion of scriptural meat, uh, there's no way you can dress up your presentation in order to impact more people. It has to be with the Word of God. Jesus used that method. It was the Word of God explaining it to the people. Um, Quite honestly, it would be a lot quicker to grow, a lot easier to grow if we would transition to attract rather than impact. Folks, is there latitude to how worship is done? Absolutely. There is latitude to how worship is done, how music is conducted, styles of music, instrumentation. They come and they go. Even a mighty fortress is our God was new at one time. You realize that. 500 years ago, Martin Luther uh, 
wrote that song, and, and I'm sure he was criticized because it was new. Virtually everything that we, that we sing was new at one time or another. There, there's latitude in music. There's latitude in worship. There's ways of doing things. There's, there's certainly nothing wrong with wanting to look nice and, and do a great job. We do that. The problem comes when you are willing to sacrifice biblical content and doctrinal truth in order to attract a crowd. That's where the line has been crossed. Once you've diverted down that path, your priorities, folks, have already changed. No longer is the mission to teach the Word of God as Jesus and the apostles did. Success becomes measured on how many people you can attract. Well, these people came pressing against Jesus for whatever reasons. But by backing away, getting into the boat, Jesus is communicating to them, there's one thing that we're here for. We're going to communicate to you the Word of God. That's why I'm here. And I'm going to push back from the shore. I'm going to sit in this boat, some open water, so everyone can hear. I'm going to teach the Word of God. We'll see who hangs on. That had to be the main draw. Consistently through Scripture, that has to remain the draw. Uh, folks, no, uh, no amount of confetti cannons can attract people uh, for a good reason if it's not for the Word of God. Jesus sat in a boat by the edge of the water. There's just profound simplicity in that. There's beauty in just the Word of God and prayer. Oh, and he finishes teaching the Word of God. We're going to see Jesus now. He turns his special attention uh, towards a smaller group of folks. These would be men whom he would call to become full-time disciples in ministry. There were perhaps several dozen, maybe a few hundred people uh, along the shoreline. Now Jesus focuses on those who would help shoulder his ministry for the remainder of his natural life. As Peter would, would later assert in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, each of these men he's going to call that we're going to see uh, in the next couple chapters, they received a share. That is a twelfth. They received their share in this ministry of Christ, in the ministry of the gospel. Folks, what a privilege. What a privilege that is to have a share in the ministry of the gospel. This section becomes very encouraging to me. With the life of Christ, you can see that there are increasing incremental spheres of relationships with Christ. Participation in His ministry. Certainly some will just wholesale reject it. I'm not talking about them, or referring to them at this time. I mean people who become involved with Jesus. Actually become involved. Some listen, they endure for a season, then they disappear, they abandon. Others continue to follow for a long period of time, and they listen with, with curiosity from afar for a long time. A still smaller circle they become intimate with Christ. They become devoted to following Him. You've got Mary and Martha and, and their brother Lazarus and those, those whom Jesus loved and spent time with. you got that smaller circle. And then there's a, 
smaller circle yet of 12. They're called by God. They come to enter the innermost circle of confidence with Christ. Right into his confidence. And even with them, three become especially close. James, Peter, and John. But here's what encourages me. Those 12 whom Christ invites to become most intimate and and most dear to him. They're primitive, unrefined, uneducated, raw fishermen. Raw fishermen. They're just blue-collar men. They're men of means. They're very practical. They're very, they're very rugged. Just like us. You know, Hollywood typically portrays men of God, especially the clergy, the clergy you know, as very effeminate, very weak. The, the movies and the media, it's on purpose. They don't like to represent men of God as being strong. That's anathema for them. This is because they know that That men in general, they're not attracted to that, uh, which is a a feminine figure of leadership. Men aren't. It's one reason, folks, Scripture does not permit a woman to lead the church. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, If any man aspires to the office of elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. Scripturally, pastors and elders must be men. Paul ordered in 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 by saying, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? Paul says, why? For it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. As we see these apostles called over the next couple chapters. This is, this is one of those biblical imperatives that will not attract a crowd. Scripture assures that the mandate for male church leadership is not based on a cultural situation. It's certainly not an ability issue. Women are more than capable. Paul referring to Genesis declares it is a design issue. It is an issue with the way that God designed the male and female, the created order of God. Adam was created first by God, then Eve. Man was designed by God to lead and to defend. Woman was created out of man's rib as a helpmate. That's what scripture declares. And here exposes one of the many problems Uh, with the church today when the question is asked why have so many men abandoned the church you don't see that as much in circles like ours that are a little more conservative but broadly across America folks you look at the denominations men have abandoned church much of the reason can be contributed to the effeminate, the the feminine styles of leadership in churches today. Men won't follow women spiritually. It's a design issue. 
It's not an ability issue by any means. It's by design. If men are forced to, they will resent it. That's a fact. Um, even if a man senses a woman leads a church from behind the curtain, he will not follow. He will not wholeheartedly follow because it is by divine design. Even if he is an unbeliever, he will know that isn't the way God created things to be. He knows that man was created by God to lead. And the image of church leaders has changed over the last 50 years, especially. And and the softer, effeminate figures have moved in and they've taken over many churches. And folks, what's happened? The big, hairy husbands, the big men, they've went home. They have went home. They stay home. They won't submit to it. As they leave, feminism then increasingly moves in and slowly pushes its way to increasingly overtake the church. And if you are a man who stands against that, God help you. God help you in today's culture. But the result of vanishing male leadership is that dad stays home and their sons who have to go with mom can't wait until they're early and uh, old enough so that they can go do what man stuff is. They can't wait to get home and build fences and move dirt and brand cattle. And they see dad doing that. And folks, the worst thing a dad can do is oppress, impress upon his son that that's okay. Or that's even fun to just skip church and do some man stuff. Church is man stuff. For whatever reason, men vacate the church is destructive to the family and the home and to the local church. The Bible's very clear. And experience backs this up. Men will not follow women spiritually in the home or to church. Men have to leave, lead. In fact, most, most Christian women, they don't even want to see a woman up leading the church. They want to see male leadership. I'm going to give an illustration. This is real life, and, and there was a wonderful woman who attended here a long time back. And, and she was very polite. Expressed from the beginning, she wasn't on board with the male leadership thing. She'd come from a different traditional background. I showed her 1 Timothy chapter 2. Seemed as though she had never seen that before in her life, in whatever denomination she was in. Had never seen that passage before, as well as others. Delightful lady. And she stayed for a while, then she left. She had the character to politely speak to me. She had that character. I appreciated that with her. Uh, before leaving, she came and spoke to me and shared the reasons why she was leaving. And, she sh- and I shared again with her what the Bible says, consistently Old Testament, New Testament. Her response was that she didn't see that at all in Jesus' teaching. My response? Of course you do. Of course you do. This is exactly what God- Jesus taught He chose 12 disciples who became the apostles to lead his church. They're all men. It's exactly what Jesus taught. Women who ask, why can't I be a pastor? 
I'm as skilled as any man. Why can't I preach? Two reasons. One is theological. And one is practical. First, theologically, the Bible does not permit it. There's no way you can make that fit. Another second reason, practical. Men will not follow. We'll observe as Jesus calls men to lead his church. These men, they are strong. They are rugged. They drive four by fours and they hunt. He starts with these guys. They're commercial fishermen. They're men who are extremely practical. They, they realize, you don't haul in any fish, you don't take home any bacon. They're practical men. Men, they're just like you and me. They're just like us. A carpenter knows if he doesn't get up early and he doesn't swing that hammer, at the end of the day, it's going to be no soup for you. A farmer who doesn't seize a break in the weather to sow his crops, he's not going to see a harvest. These are men of practical means. They understand that. Jesus doesn't normally go to high society, to banks, to universities, to call laborers for his kingdom. Folks, they're too often self-made and self-sufficient and self-reliant. Instead, he goes to the blue-collar towns. He goes to men who live paycheck to paycheck. They work hard. He knows what their habits are. They go to work daily. They bring home uh, dinner through the sweat of their brow. Little security. Most live day to day, paycheck to paycheck, taking care of their families. And until this point, they saw Jesus as a traveling preacher. He had no home. He had no primary means of income in this season of his life. He, he just went place to place preaching. Does that look like something that they would do? Relying upon things like hospitality of those who would give to them. God providing for Jesus. To this point, he had lived a very different life, primarily separate from them. He went in and out from their presence as they fished and as they joined him from time to time uh, at a synagogue. Folks, when seeking a replacement for Judas Iscariot, he is the one who, who uh, uh, betrayed Jesus. Peter declared that a man must fill his office. You remember that from Acts chapter 1, verse 21. And Peter said... That person must have accompanied us since the baptism of John and even during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us. This period we're in right now, Jesus had gone in and out amongst them. And up until this time, Jesus primarily carried out his ministry alone as the others watched. That's about to change. Peter, Andrew, James, and John remained at their jobs. Jesus traveled town to town preaching the kingdom of God. Even on this occasion, they're busy. They're cleaning their nets. They're scrubbing things up, getting ready for the next day, mending their nets. What they have known from experience in life is that you get what you earn. You get what you work for. That time is over. 
Jesus is going to teach them that if you're going to enter into the ministry of the gospel, you're going to get what God gives. And He is going to provide it for you. You're going to have to get off your self-sufficiency. They had seen Jesus as a man. He was a prophet, they knew, exercising spiritual powers over demons. They'd witnessed him healing various diseases. Of course, Elijah even healed leprosy. If they were going to enter into the ministry with him, they're going to have to discover that Jesus is more than a prophet, and he is more than a man. So after dismissing this crowd, Jesus seizes this opportunity... These professional fishermen had been out all night, had caught nothing. Nothing. And in verse 4, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Put out into the deep water. Let down your nets for a catch. Says, get a catch. Simon knew from experience, the best fishing comes at night in the shallow water where the fish come up to feed. He knows that. He's an experienced fisherman. So he replies to Jesus, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing. Notice Simon refers to him at this point as master. It's a term of respect. And even though Simon kind of appears to be protesting a little bit of, of Jesus' perceived inexperience in the matter, He shows him respect nonetheless. You know, we've all had that reaction, haven't we? Where we've worked at our job for years or decades, and then someone who's inexperienced comes in and tells you, hey, try it this other way. Try it and do it this way. Think of Jerry Beasley and myself both being aircraft mechanics, and and he works on helicopters, and uh, he works down in West Palm. And when the storm comes rolling in, Working as a mechanic for years, you might have an HR rep come out and walk across the tarmac and tell you, you know, I saw the weather. I don't think the wind's going to get very high. You turn around. Okay, good. You tie those airplanes down. You tie those helicopters down. Why? Because you know your job. You know what you do. Works for policemen firemen, everyone. Peter here knew what to do. He's a professional fisherman. He knows Jesus is not a fisherman, but on this occasion he decides to acquiesce. He said, I'll do it. He's going to give in. And I've read a number of commentaries that suggest, you know, this is the moment that signifies Peter's first great act of faith in Jesus. Maybe. Maybe. I'm not convinced. The passage doesn't supply Peter's motive to us. We don't know for certain. I think it could be the fact that a commercial fisherman who spent the whole night fishing got skunked. He might have had employees to pay. We know already he has a family to support. He's got a boat to maintain. Who knows what else? Are there any businessmen here? We have to keep the money coming in. Who knows what else he might have had. I wonder if perhaps throwing the nets back out one more time was an act of desperation by Peter. I know in my life I've come to those situations. I thought nothing would work. A last ditch suggestion. 
comes to meet desperation and you're like, I'll do it. I'll do it. Fine. Just with the hope that something good might come out of it. I just hope something will come out of it. Hail Mary pass, if you will. I don't think Simon believed it would work. I think that the just complete shock and surprise when when the nets came back in bursting because they're so full implies that he wasn't convinced, at least not fully convinced. But I think he might have been at a point where he was willing to try anything. I'll do anything. You ever been there? In your life where you just, I'll do anything. I've got to try something. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people in similar situations like that who, who before entering and in the process of entering into ministry have come to that point of desperation, including myself. Folks, when God's trying to get your attention, usually nothing will fall into place. Job offers will not come through. The phone will not ring. Contracts won't come in for your business. No matter how hard you try, you can't make it happen. Nothing seems to work. And there's that point that comes where God is going to show you. He's going to demonstrate to you He's in control. That's a general prerequisite, by the way, of being called into ministry. You better know who's in control. And your faith in making things happen on your own, as a practical man, that's got to bottom out. When you start thinking things of the church, when you think about serving Christ, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, serving the church in whatever capacity that is, you've got to abandon all hope in your own ability. When that happens, a door is about to swing open. You know, I think this is just my opinion. You don't have to buy it. I think that these fishermen here that would become the disciples, I think they might have been on a long losing streak. Dry nets. A bad place. They were at their wits end concerning how to provide for themselves, how to provide for their families how to take care of their businesses and keep them afloat. No pun intended there. This is just my assumption. Uh, rarely do you see people called into ministry with, when their secular lives are just smooth sailing and the doughs coming in. Personally, I got laid off. I lost my career after 16 years. I tried a number of things to get back on my feet. Nothing really worked. There was no turning back. Then a door opened. There's a door to ministry, a, a chance to go to Bible college and then seminary, opportunity to work for a little over minimum wage at a really good church. The nets were pretty empty. There is no way that I could have supported us. God did provide. Didn't know how I would pay for schooling by myself. The nets kept coming up empty. And I'm working at a church, gaining experience, and uh, gaining what I needed. Didn't bring in any money. Didn't bring in any money. Rita was a big help with that, but there were a lot of expenses. I've got to share this. I think enough time has passed where I can share this. 
from the pulpit. This is just one uh, little uh, example of what we've seen God do over the years. Some of those things you just don't want to talk about until a long time has passed. I'm about to enter Moody Bible Institute. Lost my job. Things weren't going real well. Trying to work at church, not bringing home much money. And we're wondering, how are we going to pay tuition? We didn't want to go into debt. You know, we had other responsibilities to keep up. And uh, tuition is about to come at $2,500 for the first semester. And uh, we hear a knock on the door. Uh, I don't know. We're out in the country. We live on f- lived on five acres out, out in Texas, out in, out in the country. And this guy walks up. Open, I open the door. I go, who are you? He goes, well, I, I'm the man you want to meet. And I said, okay, well, tell me what's going on here. And he said, uh, well, you got your five acres here. And he goes, we want to drill a gas well. And uh, we would like to lease your five acres from you. And I'm like, oh, I don't have any mineral rights. Oh, oh, yeah, you do. I go, no, I bought this land here just a few years ago and nothing transferred with me. He goes, no, the owner forgot to hold them back. They're yours. He convinced me. He said he'd done the, the title searches. He said, this is yours. And he goes, we'd like to give you a lease, uh, pay for a lease for you, $2,500. <laughs> exactly what our tuition was. Things like that continued on, and it wasn't much later when I got <laughs> accepted into Dallas Seminary. Now you're talking some real big bills. And I'm like, how in the world is that going to happen? And uh, uh, Pastor Weiler's seeing God uh, provide for him through that right now. But it's a lot of money. And then when you're not really mer- working and making any money, and Rita was working to pay our bills and help take care of her mom. But uh, long story short... They came and they started drilling. And I don't know if you're familiar, but when you drill a well in the first year, there's a lot of ground pressure for natural gas. A lot of pressure that pushes the gas out very quickly. And so there's really usually a lot of of, uh, income the first year. When they drill and they put a straw down in the ground two miles and then they make a left turn and they go under your property two miles down. And uh, myself and other neighbors who who had mineral rights, they came out and said, well, we're going to put in a well, a straw, down under the ground. And they said, by the way, we're going to put in two. That first year, God provided $40,000 through mineral rights I never even expected we ever had. Paid for all of our tuition. Had no debt when it was all over. He filled the nets when he needed to, when we needed them. That's the type of God we have. We've seen that over and over through mission work. If you've been in ministry and mission work, you've seen that. You have seen that. The gas is all gone. The money's all gone. Don't ask for a loan. (laughs) Folks, I've been in desperation. You probably have as well. A minister of the gospel needs to be thoroughly convinced there's no security to going back. You can't turn around. You can't go back to what you did before. If it were there, and you're ministering the gospel, you're involved with the church, or you're in the mission field, and if you've got some security to go back to, and then the resistance comes, and the trouble comes, and the everything else comes, you'd go back. You have to have everything taken away. 
In fact, I think Peter actually tries to do just that after the resurrection. But again, Jesus intervenes. Listen to this. Christ had been crucified. This is in the period between the crucifixion, the day of Pentecost, and uh, after the resurrection, but before the, day, before the day of Pentecost, excuse me. And uh, so we've got that period there where the disciples aren't really sure what to do. Peter denied him three times. And once again, you find them gathered by the Sea of Galilee. They're back to what they know. And I'll read it to you from John chapter 21, verse 2. And you tell me if you notice any similarities to our text today. Oh, it says, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. So what does Peter do? He goes back to what he knows. The scripture says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now folks, he's not talking about grabbing a pole and a hook and sitting under an umbrella sipping a Dr. Pepper. That's not what he's talking about. It's not for recreation. Peter's saying, I'm going back to work. I'm going back to what I know. Test continues. And they said to him, we'll also come with you. They went out and they got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Isn't that great? Nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet they did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered, No, skunked again. Skunked again. And Jesus said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. (laughs) So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on, on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Swam back to shore. And when they all got to land, Jesus was waiting there. He had a charcoal fire and fish and bread. And he said to them, come, have breakfast. Let's learn this lesson again, he said. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. See the priorities here? Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Drop this fishing stuff. I just filled your nets again. The Lord knows most of the time, admittedly admittedly not all the time, but most of the time the best ministers of the gospel 
the most loyal and devoted servants of his church on all capacities are the ones who've had bridges burned behind them by the Lord. So there's no way of going back. You look forward and you serve Christ. You had some bridges burned in your life? I know I have. I thank God for them. And I think that in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is showing those who are about to be called, as we finish this passage next week, that if you're going to rely on your own skill, your own ingenuity, your own sweat, your own strength, your own ability, folks, guys, disciples, your nets are going to be empty. They're going to be empty. You're going to have to come around to my way. If you listen to what I tell you, your nets will become full. Follow me. And in verse 5, Simon agrees to listening to the Lord. I will do as you say and let down the nets. Now he's on the right page. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help him. And they came and filled both the boats that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet. He said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter had learned Jesus is more than a master. Jesus is Lord. Peter knows that Jesus is more than a prophet. He's more than a man. Peter realizes his eyes have seen the Lord. It's not a lot different as I wrap up here with Isaiah the prophet who was given a vision of the throne of God. And in Isaiah chapter 6 it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 5, then Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter has seen the King. Isaiah too recognizes he's a sinful man. And in verse 8, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, Isaiah says, send me. God responded by telling Isaiah, okay, you've seen my holiness. You've acknowledged your sinfulness. Now you're ready to go and speak to my people. So Peter, shocked by the nets being full, falls down at the feet of the creator of the universe, the Lord God of hosts, Jesus Christ. He says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I think the Lord Jesus might have said to himself at that point, I don't know, not speaking for him. I think he might have thought with Peter, see, you see that I fill the nets. You see you can't do it on your own. You see that you're sinful. You're just about ready for ministry. We'll look at that next week as we finish up this passage. Let's pray.